0: Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and
1: planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships. You will receive an evaluation link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the QR code
0: will be listed on the last slide of today's presentation. I would like to introduce Dr. Sapriya Manapali, who is our Infection Preve- Medical Director of Infection
2: Prevention and Control. Thank you, You're
0: welcome. Thank you for attending the CME today. Um, as part of ID Grand Rounds today, we're going to learn about Microbiology Basics. Um, Dr. Jamie Morell and um, Liam Osik will be presenting this talk. Dr. Jamie Morell was born and raised in Dominican Republic. He completed medical school in Dominican Republic in 2005. He completed a few residencies with pathology at University of Florida, surgical pathology fellowship at Emory University and a breast pathology fellowship at the University of Florida. Dr. Morell was an assistant professor at University of Florida for four years. He joined Northeast Georgia Medical Center two and a half years ago. He's our microbiology lab medical director. William Osik joined NGHS in September of 2022 as the Section Head of the Health Systems Clinical Microbiology Laboratory. He graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Utah School of Medicine in Salt Lake City, and is board certified as a Medical Laboratory Scientist by the American Society for Clinical Pathology. Please join me in welcoming our presenters.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Dr. Manopali has mentioned, my name is uh, Dr. Murrell. Um, I'm going to try to explain some um, concepts that uh, have come up over the years um, about the collection, mostly, of microbiology samples. I'm going to also branch out a little bit into um, other types of uh, procedures, because it would be um, a waste of an opportunity not to touch on some um, practices that would improve the the work that we all do uh, for our patients. Um, always is good to remember that the lab is not alone. We all work together. Uh, we hear these this word very often together and together, but it's true, We the lab doesn't function without clinical staff, without the nurses, um, everybody. So we require to all uh, do the best we can for our patients. Uh, There's no way that our patients will benefit from our care if we're not doing everything in the same page. So here's this. The goal of the microbiology examination is to provide accurate, clinically pertinent, and that is very important. Um, It has to be clinical pertinent, uh, results in a timely fashion. Um, I think Bill will mention some uh, of the times, but usually we we have some sort of report within 24 hours and sometimes even immediately. Um, But the quality of the specimen uh, is critical. If the quality of the specimen, and not only for microbiology, for chemistry, for anatomic pathology, it is vital that the sample contains what you want to know. A poor sample can give you a faulty result, either it being negative or or positive. So one of the crucial parts of collecting a specimen is the the site. Uh, the body is very big; has a lot of nooks and crannies, um, and you may be unaware how important it is one centimeter of the body from the next. I usually tell uh, put the example of the neck. anterior in the neck is the thyroid. A little bit to the side is the is it, arteries. This side can have other sorts of tumors and lesions. So even a few centimeters make a big difference in the in the in the diseases that we can uh, carry, so here are some examples. Um, let me see how you can see. You don't see anything. Okay. Oh, this is difficult. Here are some examples of how we would like the 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 samples we get to be labeled. They have always they should always be labeled in the order and even better also on the container that you send them. The the site is gonna be as specific as you can make it. Uh, Sometimes we don't know, but if you can, you can put that, this is for example, an ulcer, skin of the right arm, anterior and medial, because I mean, I I don't know if you guys can see, the anterior surface is very big. You can have three ulcers there that you wanna biopsy. And I need to know which one it's the one that I'm getting, okay? So this is for the lungs, for example, uh, lower lobe, bronchial biolar lavage. Left foot, this is really important. We get a lot of orthopedic uh, biopsies and uh, cultures. It is important to know which side specific, which toe, which part of the toe was um, collected. Uh, urine, there are several types of collections for urine samples. Uh, this is just one example, clean catch. So, for microbiology, we have two types of tissue areas: sterile that are always sterile, and non-sterile sites. Sterile sites are usually simpler because they're done either on the OR on their very invasive uh, procedures. Uh, even a joint, you may not consider it invasive, but have you have your joints tap? It's pretty hurtful. So these are sterile sites. Usually, we don't have a lot of issues with these because they're properly collected. However, if the site is not properly designated, we may have issues. Uh, so examples of them is CSF, blood, pleural fluid, joint fluid, uh, and non-sterile sites, which is the focus of our talk, or my focus, in the, in that, it would be sputum, young, uh, wounds, skin, and throat. Uh, why are these non-steriles? Because they're communicated with the with the outside, so they're full of bacteria and microorganisms that will inevitably contaminate your sample. There's no way around it. You're gonna contaminate all samples that you take. The, what we want to, have, to minimize is the degree of contamination. There's no way that you can take mucus out of a nose and take only the organisms that you want. Okay? Um, so I put it in red. The less we get from you, it's the best. Okay, we want to get the, the microorganisms that we want to treat. Um, so there's always going to be human cells. Human cells are epithelial, aka mucosa, respiratory mucosa, skin from the nose, uh, and white blood cells. Um, this information is one of the cornerstones, cornerstones of viability of a a sample. If the sample contains too much of you, it is most likely not going to yield good results for your treatment, okay? So we're going to focus on the nasal, oral, respiratory, skin, and soft tissues. So this is the whole list I'm going to go over. Um, We're going to start with the sputum. So sputum may be naturally expectorated uh, and used for analysis, or it can be induced um, by cough. Uh, this is one of the hardest specimens to get correctly. I don't know if anyone in you suffers from asthma. I do. Um, and you cannot cough if you're having a... Uh, or expectorate any uh, mucus if you are having an asthma attack. So you may need to nebulize the patient. Um, to minimize superficial contamination, um, of colonizing uh, bacteria, which it's impossible to, that's why I use the word minimize. Uh, you can ask the patient to remove dentures uh, and rinse the mouth with sterile solution. Do not use tap water. Uh, you may get some weird bug in the water that you don't uh, know what to do later. Um, the sputin is immediately stained for uh, for gram stains, uh, and it's used for cultures, and uh, it should be transported to the lab immediately. On re- on if you cannot uh, do it immediately, uh, do not put it in the refrigerator. Did it move? Okay. Um, as I mentioned earlier, please use non-sterile solution. I would use saline if I'm in a pickle, uh, but it is really important not to contaminate further the specimen. Um, this is easier said than done. Instruct the patient not to expectorate saliva uh, or have post discharge because these are very contaminated uh, samples. Um, put it in a, in a sterile container, uh, tightly uh, cap it and transport it. Make sure As I mentioned before, that the label contains the special specimen type, date and time, uh, and the patient demographics. Uh, We unfortunately cannot accept a sample that has no patient information. So, we will try to do our best contact you to know if if the sample um, is uh, where does. it comes from, but it may be rejected. We don't want rejection. So for tracheal aspirates, it's basically the same concept. Uh, However, it's not so easy to ask somebody, hey, give me your tracheal mucus. So these procedures are done by suctioning um, and can be included in a procedure for the lower uh, respiratory tract. Uh, You can use saline to dilute it, um, but it is preferable if you have uh, abundant secretions. Um, aspirates, uh, specimens should be put in sterile uh, sputum trap and aseptically transferred to uh, the sputin into a sample uh, container. Um, and once again, I'm going to repeat this several times, it's important to put the demographic date and time on the specimen. Bronchial washings are not a procedure that we do often. Uh, these are done by, usually under anesthesia, um, and these are not rejected. We, the lab does not reject these specimens. Can you imagine if you're a patient, that, oh, we rejected your bronchobular lavage because reasons. We do not reject these specimens. So these are done through a bronchoscope and a patient who under anesthesia uh, and is injected saline and then aspirated. Okay, so even though these are very programmed uh, procedures, you can still have oral contamination, but it's much more uh, rare to have um, than a sputin, for example. The same goes for uh, bronchoalveolar lavage. We in the lab love these specimens um, because it uh, produces a large volume of uh, tissue, of sample, that we can do a lot of testing, including cytology evaluation. Uh, This procedure is aspirated through a bronchoscope, very similar to the uh, bronchial washing. Um, It is injected with saline and then aspirated. So here in the lower uh, respiratory samples, um, these are not placed in transport media. So if you don't put something in transport media, you have to deliver it quickly to the lab, preferably within the hour. if you cannot, says here, store it in a two to eight degrees Celsius, do not freeze, uh, but they should become as, fa- as soon as possible. Um, the slide says two hours, I would prefer them faster because they decrease the availability of having, uh, detecting fastidious uh, microorganisms like Strep pneumo and Haemophilus influenza. It also increases the likelihood of having overgrowth. Uh, even on, on histology examinations, if a sample has not been properly uh, stored, you start seeing the overgrowth immediately. Urines sometimes have overgrowth, even though the patient does not have bacteria, it was just because it, it grew in the sample. As mentioned before, we do not reject a sputum or endotracheal aspirates for culture for Legionella, Legionella or AFB or cystic fibrosis patients. It's the same concept. These are very difficult samples to obtain. Samples from bronchial washing, bronchial brushes, et cetera, um, should never be rejected from the lab based on the, these criteria that I'm going to uh, mention below. It is due to the invasiveness of the procedure. is difficult. Um, usually greater than 10 epithelial cells, epithelial cells from the patient, um, and less than 25 neutrophils, that's what polymorphonuclear means, uh, per 10 fields indicates pharyngeal contamination and suggests that the sputum space may not be representative of the lower um, respiratory tract. It doesn't mean that it's going to be rejected, but it it may have a a caveat. Um, Somebody will be notified in the lab to make sure that you know that uh, uh, it is inadequate. These do not apply to bronchial washings and bronchial lavages. Okay. We do reject uh, duplicate specimen received in the same day unless it comes with a special order. You need to make sure to say, hey, we're repeating this test for X, Y, and Z. Um, we do not reject cultures. Um, we do not accept, sorry, uh, cultures at intervals less than 48 hours. Um, We reject the following specimens, 24 hours sputum collections. They're too old. Uh, I mean, 24 hours is probably dried up already. So we we have to reject it. it. Um, Contaminated sputum per gram state rejection criteria. What I mentioned earlier about the epithelial cells and the polymorphonuclear. Uh, If the specimen is saliva only, there's no mucus. If you have a specimen, you can see that it's only saliva. Again, it's very difficult for the patients. Sometimes we have to have a little bit of compassion. It's difficult to get these things out. Um, If the specimen is clearly contaminated with, in this example, toothpaste, uh, I cannot think of anything else, but if it's obviously contaminated by something, we have to reject it. Um, It is not in this slide, but if it's in formalin, we cannot do anything with formalin. Um, And again, I'm going to repeat, Bronchial wash specimens and aspirates should never be rejected, okay? So tissue cultures. Tissue cultures are a little bit more complex. You have to do a biopsy. You need to understand the, the biology of what's happening in the, in, this, in the patient a little bit. And there's a lot of contaminants, bystander bacteria, that are just there um, living their happy life and not causing any pathology. Okay? So usually why do we get ulcers and infections abscess? Because the bacteria found a way to get into your deeper tissues where they reproduce. And usually you have to be either immunocompromised a little bit or a very deep wound. Okay? So these samples are collected during surgery or a a biopsy. You should clean the area and debris prior doing the biopsy. Never take the center of an ulcer I wish I have included a photo, but don't take the center of an ulcer because that will always have contaminants. You want to know which bacteria or microorganism is causing the ulcer or the disease of the patient. Okay? So after you debride it, Everything's clean. You go ahead and you biopsy the edges of the ulcer. This not only applies for microbiology, but it also applies for tissue that you want to send for uh, tissue uh, examination in pathology. You take the edge. The center of most ulcers all look the same. The edges is where it's at. I mean, if it, the, the ulcer is malignant, yes, we're going to see malignant cells. However, if it's an infectious process or an immune disorder the edges, okay? So it is okay to use, um, if you have a mass in the skin, a suction with a needle. You can suction the inside after you clean very well the, the site. However, something to keep in mind is that malignancies can look like an ulcer. They can look like an abscess. They can look like a bump in the skin. Personally, can give you any tips on how to distinguish them on the patient? But keep that in mind that you may get results later that this was malignant. Imagine a, a woman that has an abscess in the breast and you go with a needle, you extract. In a few days, you're going to get a diagnosis of malignancy. It's not, not a very fun thing to do. Um, swabs are acceptable for tissue cultures, but they are not... Uh, the best Uh, i put it a little bit dramatic saying that is the least appropriate if you don't have any other options to collect the tissue use a swab but always try to avoid using a swab Uh, they can get contaminated and they don't carry a lot with them so samples should be collected from areas within and adjacent to the area of infection remember never the center the center of an ulcer is not going to give you a lot of information Um, Be as generous as you can with your biopsies. Um, There's always joking that the pathologists want more and more and more tissue. It is because the tissue, I I joke usually, that the tissue doesn't say, oh, I am disinfection. That all the features are not only necessarily in that sample, so we need to see more than that. You can do several small biopsies around the, the, the. the area of concern, always trying to get as much viable tissue, both for anatomic pathology and microbiology. Remember, the organism that is causing the disease in your skin, in your bone, is not gonna go away because you clean it. It's gonna be deeper in the tissue, okay? So put the sample in a clean, sterile container. It is very important. Uh, For orthopedic prosthetic joints, multiple samples are uh, encouraged. Um, these samples should be delivered within 30 minutes uh, for best recovery. This is part one of our, um, how you say that? Um, part of our manual, they has to become within 30 minutes uh, and keep the sample at room temperature. Refrigeration, especially in bone samples and deep wounds, uh, decrease anaerobic viability. Specimen receiving formalin are no-no. The moment you put it in formalin, it is dead. There's no 10-second rule on this. Goes in formalin, you're done. There's no culture, there's nothing we can do. There's no exception like, oh, can you? No, we can't, unfortunately. And this goes also for flow cytometry uh, in lymphoma specimens. So large organs are accepted for cultures. Like I think the It's an appendix here. So if you take an an appendix or a leg and you want to do culture, make sure it goes first to the lab. When I say to the lab, not directly to microbiology. That way we can triage where to take the samples because we may need to do other tests on that sample. That is not necessarily microbiology. So, anaerobics are, a special group of, of creatures. There are the smelly ones, um, but they're a very significant component of the normal flora. So we're going to talk in a, in a few minutes or seconds, why certain areas do not get tested for anaerobics, anaerobics like no oxygen. So respiratory specimens for anaerobics are, are not indicated, okay? Um, so collection of anaerobics um, is collected at the site, site of inf, uh, infection with sterile technique, the same as usual. Um, aspirate tissue and bone biopsies. If you're going to do an aspirate, make sure you clean it. If it's an intact skin, if you just see a redness coming out of somebody, you can do it that way as an aspirate. Um, e-swaps are acceptable, but again, everything that is a swab, it's a secondhand um, uh, collection device. For aspirate, aspirate with a needle and syringe. Make sure that the surface is disinfected. And always keep the in the back of your mind, whatever you're aspirating could be malignant or could be a neoplastic lesion. If you're aspirating a bump in the skin and nothing comes out, probably even a lipoma. That doesn't have to be so grim as a tumor, but it could be even a lipoma. Um, Sinus tract or or deep wound, aspirate the material with small flexible plastic catheter and syringe after disinfecting. Um, The cubitus ulcers, punch biopsy specimen, of what in that giant um, discubitus? The edges after you clean them, really important. Where did it go? This went to the end, okay. Bronchial washing and other respiratory not obtained via by a double lumen catheter are not appropriate for anaerobics. Uh, orthopedics uh, specimens, uh, synovial tissue, biopsies, and other joint tissues should be submitted in um, anaerobic transport media. So, anaerobics are finicky, so we have to be a little bit faster. Whenever you put the orders, make sure you say aerobic and aerobic and fungal if you really need that. Uh, keep them always at room temperature. That's one of the reasons why you really need to bring them down to the lab because uh, they're gonna get overgrowth and they may get oxygen and dying. Uh Small vol- volumes of aspirate materials should be put in transport media within 30 minutes. Uh, 30 minutes. Again, if if you have to use a swab, uh, transport it within an hour. So unacceptable specimens for anaerobic are throat swabs, nasopharyngeal swabs, sputum, endotracheal suction, gingival, AKA everything superficial in the respiratory. That's one of the easiest ones. Refrigerated specimens, we have to reject them. Why? Because the refrigerator kills the anaerobes um that's about it and that's it um i think we're going to take questions at the end so go All
1: right, howdy, y'all. I am uh, Bill Osick, William Osick. I'm the microbiology supervisor here at Northeast Georgia Medical Center, um, and we get to see all the fun stuff that Dr. Mel just talked about. Um, I think one of the the interesting things, um, especially looking at, at the, the the different information that we present and all the different um, facts and you know statuses that we have, is to remember this is like this is a real Living, breathing, working environment. This is a place. And so I think a lot of times we see just data in the the screen, and you look in your EMR and you see, you know, here here are your antimicrobial susceptibility results. And, you know, there's there's a whole lot that goes on behind the scenes. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. literally just about a little bit. There's a ton of information. Um, I was just trained, had some high school students that came through the today with two groups of them. And really it's just scratching the surface. There's a one ton of wonderful uh, things. Um, I don't have any disclosures we mentioned at the beginning, although if somebody wants to bribe me, we can talk. Um, I left this slide on here. It's the, the mission for Northeast Georgia, um, improving the health of our community and all we do, mostly because that, that's kind of exemplified in what we're doing here today is having this continued discussion, um, striving for the greater understanding between um, other sections in the lab, um, providers and, and everyone else to allow that, um, that I guess improvement, the, the good communication to happen. Um, the diagnostic stewardship that we're talking about is really the heart of, um, of this concept. It's doing what's right and making things better. So overall, I'll give you a quick overview kind of as you see where we're going so it's your hair's not on fire out the window. Um, first, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the setup bench, the first thing that happens when, when the samples come into our microbiology lab. Um, a little bit about the acceptability source um, specific information, um, test appropriateness and plating or planting depending on, on um, how, you, how you discuss that. Um, We'll also talk a little bit about the rapid tests and some of the more classic microbiology tests, uh, including something quick, like like an antigen test that we can check really fast. And then that same sample going on for a culture, which may take a little bit more time. Um, uh, In addition to that, some of the PCR uh, testing that we have available in in the wide menu that that includes. Um, We'll skip ahead and talk a little bit about the uh, case study um, with using a urine culture. and then uh, some gram stain um, of blood cultures, uh, some of the diagnostics that we use for blood cultures um, with with sepsis being as as critical of a a clinical condition as it is, it really is important that we're doing things right when it comes to to handling and managing those patients. And so we'll talk about how the the tests that we have that that allow us to to really contribute to a, a more a QUICKER RESPONSE, A QUICKER RESULT, AND A, and a BETTER um, OUTCOME FOR THE PATIENTS. Um, AND ALSO ON THE OTHER SIDE, AS, as a, ANOTHER TEST, WE HAVE A CEPHEAD, uh, WHICH IS A TEST FOR mrsa but WE'LL TALK ABOUT THAT A LITTLE BIT. Um, I'LL TOUCH BRIEFLY ON MALDITOFF, um, WHICH IS ONE OF THE uh, PRETTY WONDERFUL like INSTRUMENTS THAT WE HAVE NOW um, THAT SAVES US A LOT on um, ON TEST UTILIZATION. And then um, talk a little bit about what you're used to seeing, the microbiology reports and, and what they mean and what we, what we expect to see um, in those things. And then finally, some of the diagnostic um, stewardship partner uh, wins, the things that we see that we, that we accomplish together. So um, starting off with the setup bench, um, Dr. Morell talked a lot about the specimen acceptability. Really without that, without having a good concept of what constitutes a good sample, um, you're not going to get the results that you need. If you have an infection or your patient has an infection, but that sample doesn't come in its its optimal condition, you're not going to get the the answers you need. Sometimes we we say in the lab, garbage in, garbage out. And we don't want to see that, we don't want that to happen. Um, So with the specimen acceptability, the the, the type of the specimen is important. The the actual um, source, whether it's urine or or feces or a tissue sample or a bone, um, all of that can can guide and direct where that sample is going to go and how it's going to be handled. Um, the time and temperature, um, the time, date, date, and time of collection, uh, as well as the temperature of storage and transport, has a significant impact on how um, how good of a sample you get and what you can recover. Um, you know, you, when I was a kid, we used to call. Um, there was a hotline, and uh, you call time and temperature. And that was before you know you had the atomic clocks. You call in, and it would read you off the time and tell you what the current temperature was. So, it's kind of a, kind of following us into into this, the rest of this. Um, the world here, that it, it does remain uh, really important to know that those samples, that the, the microorganisms that are contained therein are viable. Um, Dr. Morell I think talked a little bit about that um, and the urine is a really good example because if you let it sit out too long or it's too warm, then some of the contaminating flora or bacteria can overgrow and then you're not going to find the pathogen Um, On the other hand, you may have an organism that doesn't survive very well. And so that same amount of time will actually cause the pathogen to die off or disappear or not be um, recoverable in in the culture. Um, The quality of the sample matters. And and we talked a little bit about, Dr. Mel talked about that as well, with um, the type of samples that we're getting, um, especially with sputum cultures and and being able to really evaluate and see what cells are there, what type of, things do we see within that sample when we do microscopy, when we do a stain, and can we tell that that's really a good uh, representative sample? And then uh, quantity. Um, We we do our best to work miracles, but there has to be enough to to get it on a plate or to get it into a broth. And so that can be a really critical aspect of everything as well. Um, So um, one of the questions I'll leave out there for the the quiz at the end is is really, how does that stability, that time and temperature impact um, microbiology testing? Um, moving on to the source, um, uh, knowing what we've got is also really important. So having the cr- uh, correct and specific information. So if you've got those three um, lesions on your arm, we don't know which one it came from. It's going to be really hard to tell apart what we're doing and what we're setting up. So it's really important that we have that information that's detailed that you as a clinician hopefully will have um, and, and be able to share that with us. Um, so you know the difference between a bronchoalveo- bronchoalveolar lavage, uh, sputum sample and a tracheal aspirate can can be very significant, especially for for how it's obtained and, and how it's um, the ability to recollect something like that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, in similar fashion, as um, many of you will recall, with um, you know the past work we've done with um, respiratory viruses, especially with SARS-CoV-2 and, and the, the COVID pandemic, the difference between the anatomic site, you know, an anterior nasal swab versus a mid-turbinate, which is a little bit deeper, versus the the nasopharyngeal swab. Um, urine, we get a lot of time, and this one's a, one that's commonly messed up too. Or we, we we see different things. Is what's really a clean catch? Is it clean? Um, do we have a good sample that can really indicate whether um, whether there is a, a a contaminating organism or if it is the pathogenic organism that, that we're recovering foley catheter has been a hot topic lately as well and we'll we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit lately a uh, little bit later as well the um, placement of a catheter that's indwelling having that in a human tends to grab a hold of those biofilm forming bacteria and if you if you're pulling samples from an old catheter you're going to get what's on the catheter more than what's in that patient and that's a that's a critical part of being able to treat a patient appropriately and not treat them for an infection that they don't have, frankly. Um, another one that was mentioned to me actually by one of my microbiologists was um, was the difference between, you know, a stomach versus an abdominal wound or skin. you know there's and you come from the, the general same place, and it might be easy to say, "Ah, it's from the stomach, but really that means something very, very different to us. And so seeing piece of a stomach or a stomach biopsy for, for example, H pylori, Helicobacter pylori, um, will be handled completely differently um, than maybe uh, just a, a skin lesion or a wound on, this, on this, the abdominal region. Um, another one that was mentioned by one of my microbiologists was um, a vaginal swab or a vaginal specimen versus a vulvar sample, um, and the, what you can expect to receive from, from those two different um, sources. Um, when it boils down to it, it's that communication. It's knowing what you've got, what you've uh, taken from that patient, and then taking the time to really enter that in and, and let the microbiologist know what we're dealing with so that we can adequately get you the, the, the best um, information, best response. Um, <clears throat> moving on to the next bit is, is from the appropriateness of having a good sample is also knowing which tests you're ordering. And so um, having an anaerobic culture from a superficial site where there's not an anaerobic environment wouldn't make sense um so an anaerobic organism oftentimes is is actually killed off by the presence of oxygen you know there there are several organisms and many of these anaerobes especially fusobacterium um that really don't survive at all in in an oxygenic environment and so we have to have them in the laboratory we actually take all the oxygen out change the air out um, and put them in an environment that, that they can actually survive in um, I used to kind of joke around that if, if, you, if you want to find a bill somewhere, you're not going to find me up north in the snow and trudging around in the woods. You're going to want to find me somewhere in the warmth and maybe on a beach somewhere. I don't know, but we have to go to where these organisms are happy. And so if it's an anaerobe, we need to make sure that we're looking in having that anaerobic environment for them to survive. Um, likewise, if we have an anaerobic culture that doesn't also, that is not accompanied by an aerobic culture, so we can compare those two, that's, that's an important um, bit. Um, you can, of course, have an aerobic culture without that anaerobic, but if you have that anaerobic culture, you do need to have the, the equivalent of an aerobic culture or a tissue culture or a bone culture that would match that. Um, the next one is kind of an interesting one for me because we see this uh, special request a lot, um, and this is a, a test appropriateness for, um, for example, we, we, um, we see a lot for, for joint infections. and We'll be looking at Cutibacterium uh, acnes, and that's a really slow-growing organism. So how are we going to find it? If I if I just pop it in the incubator, wait 24 hours and look at it, I'm not going to find anything probably. It's not going to be there. And so we get special requests to hold these for a little bit longer, which is absolutely 100% appropriate. But after a while, um, raise your hand if you've ever seen an auger plate. Have you ever, have you ever handled one? Have you ever touched one? Kind of that the kind of jelly gelatinous stuff. You let that sit for 5, 10, 15, 20 days, it turns into a potato chip. And you're you're not going to get much growing on it. And so um, that, that's another thing to consider is, is, you know up to maybe 10 days, we have that good time. And that's enough time for maybe C acne to really grow. But if you've got a request for 21 or more days, by the, by the time you get to that end of that culture, it's really not going to be as useful um, for you. And you're just waiting for, for a result that's not really going to be valuable. Um, another one that we see a lot of times, we have a test that's um, screens for MRSA and MSSA. So methicillin-resistant staph aureus or methicillin susceptible Staph aureus. The screen is actually, it's a really neat one because it's just, um, right now it's just a nasal swab. And we played it onto this Chrome uh, uh, auger plate. So it's got two different sides. It's got one side that has oxacillin in it and it has another side that doesn't. And you can you can actually, it's chromogenic. So you see if Staph aureus grows on one side and not the other, you can see that the, the staff is there but it didn't survive in that, in that environment where there was oxacillin. So it's resistant, not oxacillin standing in for the methicillin. Um, but if you've got a, a dog bite or a leg wound or something like that, you don't need to order a, a staph screen because this is a pre-ops, pre-surgical type of, of test. If you're worried that there's going to be potentially a staph infection in that wound, you can guarantee that if it's there, it'll pop up on that routine culture. And so normally if we see something like that, we'll actually um, let you know that we're going to cancel the screen because it's not, a, not an appropriate test for that. And this is kind of, you know, delving back into this, the the um, uh, Utilization of our tests, um, you know, the the diagnostic stewardship is as we're saying. Um, let's see. Um, Another one that's kind of been a hot topic is, is overuse of the urine cultures. Um, I, I kind of put a little joke in here that it's, you know, handing out cultures like Oprah hands out, you know, prizes in her show. And, you know, everyone here, oh, you're not feeling great. You get a culture and you get a culture and you get a culture. And you're in the emergency room. Hey, get you a culture too. Um, may not be the most um, appropriate situation, especially if these patients are asymptomatic. And so being judicious in how we employ some of these tests, Um, Will really get us uh, more valuable information and more valuable of a response, um, and prevent our patients from having to undergo extra therapies and and um, and treatments of the uh, taking extra antibiotics and whatnot. Um, Let's see Um, another uh, another one that real life example is um, we're here to help, Um, and so when you have questions about ordering, it is complex. There's a lot of weird stuff, but if you walk in and you or you call me up on the phone and you're like, hey. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to order something. We'll do it our best to, to figure out what we need to do and get, to get the right test. Occasionally we'll have, um, very, um, uh, proactive go-getter nurses will come in there and they'll say, all right, I'm going to Google search. I'm going to, I'm going to pull up in my, my procedure manual and I'm going to search for aerobic and it's going to pull up ah, There it is. It pulled up something I'm going to hit it and go. And that, that, that hit that you got for aerobic was actually a send out test for a reference lab for susceptibility testing. Well, we do, we don't have an organism yet. And even if we had an organism, most of the susceptibilities are going to be done here in-house, and so that's not the right direction to go. And so um, in cases like that, you're really looking for a different type of culture. Um, And so we have um, very successful um, and helpful specimen processors, uh, customer service people, and also microbiologists in the lab that are happy to help out with that, making sure that we're we're getting the right test for the right purpose. Another one that we see is um, bacterial vaginosis, which I make sure I'm not going too long, um, where we order a fungal culture, which is not appropriate for, for that. And so um, with, with this particular test, we, we actually do um, a stain and we look at the prevalence of certain organisms, whether they're gram positive or gram negative and, and the normal flora you would expect to see and compare that to, um, to what else is around. And by doing that, we can say, okay, is this, is this an imbalance or is it not? And really tell whether there is a, a, um, a vaginosis or an infection. But um, BV cannot be diagnosed by culture. um, And also, uh, fungal cultures should not be used in that case because it's not appropriate um, to to grow up. You're going to end up culturing a lot of normal flora in that case. Um, If y'all have questions as I'm going, feel free to pop up and hands, I'm sure there are microphones around there. Um, Otherwise, I'll just keep on going. The last, the last bit for this section is plating. And so this is really the magic when, it, when the magic happens at the beginning. So we'll bring those samples and we actually triage, we'll look at everything, we'll check the date, we'll check the source, we'll check the time. We'll make sure that it's the appropriate um, temperature and that we have the right amount of sample and we can handle this. Then we'll go over and we'll actually track it into the computer system to document, yes, it's here. Yes, we have labels and yes, we're gonna rock this. Um, those will get set up and then um, plated on different media. There's a whole slew of different media that, that that we use. Some of it inhibits certain bacteria, some of it encourages others to grow. Depending on what we're looking for, you may see a whole rainbow worth of different types of, of auger plates or tubes of broth or things that we'll actually look at. Now, now take us a st- second to stop and think, I just ordered that and I just put it in Epic and said, I'm going to order this test. And what's happening in the in-between time between the time you order that test and the time you get a result, be it preliminary or final? that's all this magic that's happening right now is is that plating is that analysis is looking and tracking down these these um the quality of these different samples and what's growing from them um plating also over that area we'll do the rapid pcr test the rapid um strep screens the different tests that that are really quick uh, to look at um and um, then we'll pop them in an incubator whichever one makes them the most happy depending on the organism so I'm gonna take a sensory break cause I haven't had any pictures yet. Um, and as microbiologists, we like to see pictures. We like to look at things. So this is a, um, uh, a set of plates that um, that I collected a number of years ago at a career fair. And this is, this is the, the, the uninhibited fingers of your toddlers and your children who are in an elementary school. So we just had them go and get a chance to kind of touch and feel the plates um, and cook that up overnight and brought it back actually to the school the next day. Um, and what an interesting experience it was to talk to the teachers after they saw what, <laughs> what kind of stuff. Now, a lot of this is probably going to be your normal flora. You're going to see normal just dirt bacteria and those, those things and, and stuff. But it, it is kind of uh, enlightening and, and um, illuminating to see all the stuff that's around us. And a good reminder that we have this balance of good bacteria that help us to, to, to be in a good balance to not have the pathogenic organisms. All right. All um, right. So um, some of our rapid tests compared to the classic tests, one of the ones we do is if you have strep throat, we're gonna run and check this, do a swab on the back of your throat and check it real quick within about 15 minutes to see if there's um, an antigen present on, on that swab. Now, those tests aren't the most um, sensitive. So they're really good at picking up strep. If strep is there, they're not gonna t- generally tell you that it's there when it's not, but it can be negative when, when there is some of that organism, it just doesn't hit the threshold to, to turn that, that very simple test to go positive. So all of our negative strep cultures will also, or strep screens will also get a culture. And that's actually played it out before we even put the, the swab in for the rapid test. We'll, we'll pre-plate it and get it ready to go. If it's positive, we will toss it in the trash and call it positive and it's good to go. If it's negative, that plate goes right in the incubator. And what we're gonna look for is now we're going from a rapid test a classic test. And we're going to look on that auger plate, that blood auger plate, similar to the the, the ones here. And we're going to look for beta hemolysis. So a clearing in the, those red sheep blood cells that are in the auger there. And then we'll type it and we'll isolate it and do the, the necessary testing on that if, if we need to. The next one is a Legionella and strep, uh, Streptococcus pneumonia antigen in urine. This is an interesting one too, because those are both respiratory, vi- or respiratory bacteria that, that cause pneumonia. But... Fortunately, you, you can have these intact antigens come out in the urine, which you don't really need, and doesn't really generally hurt all that much, especially when it's, you're just having pneumonia to, to acquire that. And so we can really quickly tell reliably whether there's um, antigen in your urine um, for those, which is really a useful test. If we didn't have that, you know, going back to our diagnostic stewardship, if we didn't have that, what would we be doing? One of the cultures i used to run actually was the legionella and it was not the antigen it was actually the legionella pneumophila on a specialized plate it was a black auger plate that had some charcoal and bcye um, that allowed that particular organism to grow it's a little bit fastidious and we did that culture for seven days it took a long time um, if the Legionella was there, we would see it maybe day three, four, up to day seven, um, and, and have to pick it out. A very manual process that you'd have to be an experienced microbiologist to phenotypically look and say, oh, that looks like Legionella to me, that has that same color, that has the right hue, that has the right um, characteristics, and then go with a further identification. And that took some time, um, and it took some effort, it took some, some um, a, lot of, a lot of doing. Whereas now we have this, this wonderful ability to just, to just test it on the urine, which is great. We still do the culture um, in, in some rare cases. Um, moving on to some of the other ones, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on here, but um, rotavirus, which is a quick antigen test for rotavirus um, in, in stool. Giardia and cryptosporidium, which are parasites. We can actually detect the antigen as well on the stool. Um, general stains, gram stains for organisms from the actual um, like a respiratory sample that you get or off of a culture plate. Uh, Gimsa stain, which is looking for malaria. We use these up just, just over here in the outpatient building on the on the second floor where we are. Um, we'll check for fecal white blood cells with the methylene blue stain, which will, can give you an idea of whether there's an inflammatory process happening if you have white blood cells in your stool. So all of these things that are really rapid, quick, generally relatively inexpensive tests that we can do. Um, and then also the PCR tests. Um, on the contrary, we have um, these these more difficult culture-based methods where you're looking at the morphology on a plate. You're looking at what the bacteria look like. You have to wait 18 to 24 hours to even get it. Then you're putting biochemicals on there, and so I have to isolate this organism. Then I'm going to put it on a on a piece of filter paper, and I'm going to drop some some hydrogen peroxide on it to see if it bubbles up or not, whether it can produce um, you know an oxidase, which will which will take that oxygen off of the hydrogen peroxide and turn it into oxygen and water, and those are the ways we can use to identify these different organisms, but they're, they're kind of a manual prof- process. Um, we have a Shiga toxin, which is for um, uh, hemorrhagic E. coli. And that's one that we'll, we actually have to incubate overnight um, and, and do some analysis on before we actually put it on a relatively quick quick test, like the rapid test, but it has to incubate overnight first. Um, and then getting into some of our more sus- uh, other the susceptibilities, MALDI-TOF, which I'll talk a little bit about later, which is a, a pretty marvelous um, instrument um, that helps us to get um, quick, reliable identification that you can, as a clinician, act upon and, and, and decide how you're going to prescribe based off of like that. Um, E-test or gradient diffusion, antibiotic tests, fungal cultures, all part of our repertoire. And this is by no means all-inclusive. There, there are quite a few different things that we that we do up in the microbiology lab that we have to judiciously select where we're what we're going to do. Um, and in many cases, it has to be ordered appropriately as well. Okay, so um, the respiratory viruses, SARS-CoV-2, uh, flu RSV, um, and compared to a biofire bio respiratory panel. So these are two different tests. One of them can finish in about 40 minutes. The other one takes a couple of hours. Um, the 22 targets is quite a bit more expensive and takes a lot more. Um, sometimes we see these just rapid fire from um, uh, certain locations where they're probably only looking for, do they have COVID or not? I just need to know, can I send them up to a room? Am I in the emergency department, for example? Um, and so having the appropriate test orders to, to match that, um, the need and what you're actually looking for. Um, uh, CTNG chlamydia gonorrhea or chlamydia trachomatis and Iceria gonorrhea um, group B strep which is another quick one especially for um, uh, neonates and, and the potential for neonatal meningitis um, although once we would get that it may not be you know we can test that by PCR and say is this here is it not we may not need to actually do susceptibility testing because that organism is predictably susceptible to penicillin Um, If mom's allergic to penicillin and and can't do a a, 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 a sensitization test study or something like that, then it may be appropriate to run a little bit more of susceptibilities and try and find a better option for them. Um, C. diff is another one that we talk about a lot too. Um, Orders for C. diff come through with with loose stool that's caused by one thing or another. Sometimes we get formed stool, which is not appropriate because of the nature of the specimen. It's not um, consistent with a C. diff infection um <clears throat> let's see um MRSA and staph from blood carbapenemase detection by PCR which is a really interesting one because in a pretty quick time we can know that that carbapenem is resistant to we had um, a couple of them this week that were the New Delhi metallo beta-lactamase that NDM and how you treat an NDM is much different than how you would treat something with a KPC um, gene uh, for carbapenem resistance um And then, uh, of course, the uh, the mycobacterium tuberculosis, which um, we can test and see is it there, does it resistant to rifampin, which is one of the the first line antibiotics, but it might not, it certainly won't pick up something else like a avium intracellulari complex or something like that, which also could be causing an infection. So with that, we would also have to have a culture. It would be required to have that culture. So let's talk about that quick case study. So this was a urinalysis that was ordered for dysuria, painful urination, uh, nitrite positive, and a few white blood cells. Um, I don't know how good that picture is, but there's quite a lot of uh, bacteria on there. You can see a few white blood cells, um, no yeast or anything else. Um, When it got to the lab, it was plated out pretty quickly. Um, When I first saw it, it was actually pretty young. It didn't have a chance to grow up a whole lot. And so it looks pretty good, right? It's pretty consistent as an organism, there's something growing. Fast forward to the appropriate read time. And I don't know how well you can see it, but if you look right there in the middle, you might see you've got this gray spreading colony um, or spreading organism. And then you've got some spickled, kind of whiter top sitters there. Um, but on that McConkie plate, which is the pink one, it looks pretty pure. So, what that tells me is that I actually have some, some gram positive, something that's gram positive sitting there on top. Well, is that going to concern me with this urine culture? Probably not. Um, uh, I'm going to think that that's a predominantly going to, or that's going to be most likely um, either a staph epidermidis or some sort of staph contaminant um, and unlikely to cause, be to cause the infection. That big gray one, however, is what I'm concerned with. Now, this isn't a surgical sample. This isn't a urology, uh, urologic procedure sample. So if you were to ask me, hey, let me get the identification the susceptibility on that white guy too, the white colony there's going to be a problem with that because it's really not going to give you any useful information. And so that is one area where we can kind of um, guide to or towards useful um, use of that information or using the information appropriately. Um, in this case, um, that second organism was a probable skin contaminant. We did put it onto a PEA, which isolates four gram positive organisms and then didn't need any further workup. The uh, idea of susceptibility for that gray lactose fermenting organism, the pink one on the McConkie plate was E. coli um here's our blood culture instruments uh, moving on to our blood culture there are um three different so there's six different instruments there stacked one on top of each other each one has two drawers and that's where we put these hot sauce bottles if you ever seen the blood culture collections they fit right in there and then they as they go positive it the the machine will alarm and yell at us and blink red and we'll immediately pull it out the interesting thing about this is is that first step is that as soon as we get that we know there's a positive blood culture. Now we don't know what's in there. We don't know if it's a contaminant. So we're going to take it and we're going to gram stain it and look and see, okay, what are we dealing with? Is this a gram positive organism or is this not? Is this something that that may actually be, um, uh, not that a gram positive organism isn't isn't important, um, but if it is a gram negative bacillus, we have this really cool instrument called an accelerate pheno, which we only use for those gram negatives um, and select for that because of the propensity for seeing um, skin flora contaminants um, in there. We don't want to waste a cartridge on something that just could be skin flora. So we'll put that on there. And then within about two hours, you can have an ID directly from that blood culture without having to culture it overnight, without having to grow the organism for 18 to 24 hours. And then within another uh, total seven hours, you can have susceptibilities or preliminary susceptibilities for that organism. Now it has a limited menu, um, but it's it's a really neat um, way of doing, um, of, of testing for that. And um, if you do have gram-positive cocci and they're in clusters, we might be worried about staph um, or MRSA, in which case we have a different test that will run a PCR to detect whether there's Staphylococcus aureus and MRSA on there. Um, here's a picture of our um, accelerate phenom that's up there. We have four of, four of them that are connected together. The ID is done by fluorescent in situ hybridization, which is just the artificial genetic material with a, with, a, with a fluorescent label on it. And if it, if it picks it up in that E. coli well, then it's going to it'll tell you what you've got. Um, the, the, the analytics on this are required. You have a supercomputer on the back to really kind of um, get you the information you need. Um, I'll skip through here. This is our MALDI-TOF. This is the, the one that once we have a colony, we can put that colony in there and uh, literally it blast it with lasers. It's a matrix assisted laser desorption and ionization instrument. And by a mass spectrometer, you blast that with the lasers, the smoke goes up through a vacuum and you can tell by the spectra what kind of organism. It's like a fingerprint for these different organisms. And you can tell them very, very specifically apart from a lot of different organisms. The, the way that this one kind of plays into is having that um, ability to run this in a, in a quick time once you've got the, um, the, uh, um, the, or the organism already growing. Um, and I've gone a little bit late here, uh, so I'll quickly run through these microbiology reports that you expect to see. It's kind of a progression. Um, initially, you may get a culture in progress, which means we're working on it and there's nothing really happening. Um, a blood culture may report out per, uh, no growth at 24 hours or 48 hours until it pops up. Um, once we do have a positive um, organism or a positive result, we'll actually give that gram stain. And if it's a blood culture, we'll give the clinician a call. Um, if we'll actually contact them for... Um, a lot of the other organisms as well. As soon as we have any information, we're going to give it to you in a preliminary report. Um, as soon as we have a presumptive identification, we'll also update that um, that report move along through. Um, if there's any confirmation that needs to go out to a public health lab, we'll send those on and kind of give you updates along the way um, until the point where we have a confirmed identification, eventually get that susceptibility in a final report. You may at that point say, hey, these, these, I maybe need a different antibiotic, and pump, we can actually go in and correct the report to add an additional antibiotic if we have to run some additional testing to get that information there. Um, and then also if we have uh, testing that's not done on site, we can actually send that out as well. Um, Moral of the story is we have this, this, this wonderful whole system. It kind of seems like a big black box. You go into the information goes in and it comes out and you get the results. But really there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes. And um, the microbiologists out there are really um, excited and happy to discuss things with you as you go through. There's not really a miracle grow to make it go any quicker. Um, some of these old cultures just have to run the course. We have to have them. We can't run certain tests without having an adequate growth of 18 to 24 hours, just depending on the organism. Um, and then, you know, then maybe have to, to evaluate that by the, those morphologies, those biochemical reactions that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, finally, the diagnostic stewardship, um, working with ph- physicians, nurses, uh, clinicians, to have this dialogue, to discuss, to make sure that we're using our tests appropriately, to work on um, the reduction of, of uh, infections that can be prevented like the CAUTIs, um, blood culture contaminations, um, improving our algorithms and our testing, bringing on new tests that are bigger and better or smaller and better or cheaper or more sensitive. And we spend a lot of time focusing on that. And as um, a lot of times we get feedback from clinicians who go to a, um, a conference and hear about some things and they'll bring that back to us and we can evaluate those and bring them to there. Um, anyone really can um, collaborate with us can, can jump in and offer those things. We have a very collaborative environment. We want to help, we want to provide this information at a whole lot more enjoyable um, and, and less boring of a, of a time than you have me just listening to me up here. So if you have questions, if you have comments or concerns or anything with uh, give us a call um, and feel free to come up and tour the lab. We'll give you a, a great tour where you can have that visceral experience and see the organisms and hold the plates and, and you know, smell the organisms. Um, some of them actually do smell really good, believe it or not. Um, any questions, observations, or or any discussions you'll have? Thank you, Dr. Morrell. Thank you, Bill. Do we have we don't have any online, So if you have a question online, just put it into the Q and a chat, and um, we'll ask that for you. I was just wondering, um, about the cost? Uh, I know there's, you went through a lot of the rapids, uh, like the urine strap and the urine legionella, but what are the costs of the patients typically for those? The cost of the patients? Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of depends. I think we, we see a, a kind of a diverse group with our inpatient it all is kind of falls under the a similar bucket. Some of those tests actually can be relatively expensive. And that's one of the ones that I've been working on. I guess, mean, comparatively, they can, you know, we get them in a in, in a kit, and they're you know they several hundred dollars to get all of these together. Um, but one of the new tests that I kind of mentioned we're we're evaluating now actually is a combined test. So right now we run um, the Legionella and the Strep pneumoniae. It's a similar test, but we run them side by side, it's a different, it's a different kit for each organism, and we have to run them side by side, they're slightly different instructions. But we're evaluating one now I actually have in my office that is combined and it's a little bit more sensitive the Legionella has a uh, rather than just getting your serogroup group one you actually have five different serial groups that it'll actually pick up it won't tell you the difference between them but it will pick up um, and and be uh, positive for that and it's a little bit cheaper I think than, than having those two two tests together So what the cost is I think that kind of depends I don't know exactly how that goes back and influences uh, or is influenced by um, insurance and, and those other things but um, the the cost, in time, the cost of not having to go into the, the you know, the, the lungs to get a sample or to have somebody have to expectorate a sputum or to wash something out really does um, speed up that process. And you can start treatment a lot, a lot quicker than going in and having to culture a respiratory sample. But that's a really good question.
0: Dr. Morell and Bill, thank you so much for this informative talk. One clarifying question, uh, when we order a sputum culture, that is not set up automatically for Legionella in our lab, is that correct? correct. So you have to order a separate Legionella culture. In some labs, they do both, but in our lab, it's a separate order for Legionella culture.
1: Yeah, and we actually don't do that on site here as well. We don't have the the appropriate media. It does require special media. I should have, I should have been clear with that. The the my experience with Legionella cultures was at a previous facility at a different a different lab, and so we do we do um, it is done, um, but um, we don't have it on site here. Generally, your your um, urine screen is going to be the the best bet we've got. And it can be sent out and we can, we can work with that, but it's not done on site.
2: Awesome. Any other questions or comments? Great, thank you very much.